This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am Emily Allen, your host for this episode. And we have two guests with us today, Joanna and Tim Smolko, authors of Atomic Tunes, The Cold War in American and British Popular Music, published by the Indiana University Press in 2021. And a little bit more about the book that we're discussing today. So during the Cold War, over 500 songs were written about nuclear weapons, fear of the Soviet Union, civil defense, bomb shelters, McCarthyism, uranium mining, the space race, espionage, the Bryn Wall, and Glasnost. So this book uncovers aspects of these world-changing events that documentaries and history books cannot. So in this book, Atomic Tunes, Tim and Jonas Moko explore everything from the serious to the comical, the morbid to the crude, showing the widespread concern among musicians coping with the effect of communism on American society and the threat of nuclear conflict of global proportions. Atomic Tunes presents a musical history of the Cold War, analyzing the songs that capture the fear of those who lived under the shadow of Stalin, Sputnik, Mushroom Clouds, and Missiles. So a little bit more about our uh, visitors with us today. Uh, first, Jonas Moko holds a PhD in musicology and currently serves as adjunct professor of music at the Hugh Hodgins School of Music at the University of Georgia. And finally, Tim Smoko holds master's degrees in musicology and library science and is Monograph's original cataloger at the University of Georgia. So welcome to both of you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Yeah. And so we're excited to have you here at the New Books Network. And before we talk about your book, can you tell us more about yourself? So we'll start with Joanna first, and then Tim, if you want to tell us more about you after that. Hi, I'm a musicologist, or sometimes my work straddles the parallel field of ethnomusicology. Um, And my specialty is American music traditions. So musicologists study the history of music and its relationship to culture, art, and music. I teach at the University of Georgia, and my research interests range across classical, popular, and folk music topics. Um, Some of these include sacred harp hymn traditions, the music of Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen, protest music, and film music. I also like exploring intersections between musical traditions. For example, my dissertation was on the use of sacred harp music in classical music and film scores. I'm also a freelance editor and academic coach, and I teach piano, ukulele, and guitar to children. 
Okay, I'm Tim. I'm the other half of our dynamic duo. I'm also a musicologist, but my main gig is working as a librarian at the University of Georgia. So I've been a cataloger there for almost 15 years. I create original cataloging records for new books for WorldCat. I'm also an author. Uh, I write mostly about rock music. Uh, my first book was about one of my favorite bands, uh, the British progressive rock band Jethro Tull. I also play the drums and I teach drums in our basement. It's very loud down there. I also edit theses and dissertations and I'm a record collector uh, with over 2000 records. Um, on a personal note, we have 14-year-old uh, twins and our favorite thing we like to do with them is to travel and to eat. Right on. That sounds yellow awesome as the dynamic duo as you put it yes but i'm excited to have y'all here with us today um and then kind of shifting gears to this current project uh that y'all have been working on you know how did this how did atomic tunes get started you know what what are the roots the genesis here of this whole thing if tim you can talk about that for us sure well after i got my first book done i was hunting around for a new idea and one day I was just listening to the radio and I, uh, three, three songs in a row came on that happened to be about the Cold War. And I think they were uh, 99 Red Balloons by Nina, Russians by Sting, and Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne. And it's, I just happened to notice that, you know, all three songs had something to do with, you know, Cold War issues. And then I, I started looking around in the library and I saw that there were books written about songs out of World War One and World War Two, And I found a lot of books, of course, about the Vietnam War protest songs. But I had not found a book about songs that address issues about the Cold War, you know, from the mid-40s to the early 90s, the whole span of the conflict. So I started looking for songs, and I started making the list, and the list grew and grew. And I started talking to Joanna about it. And she had a lot of good ideas, and it just sort of snowballed from there. Yes, that is teamwork at its finest, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. As, as part of it, I really had an interest in the women who were singing about these issues, as well as um, people like Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen, who had really wonderful songs that address some of these things. So. I jumped right in when he said, oh, we, we need to look at these things. And I said, yes, I want to look at those things in particular. Yeah, it's very complimentary. And I think you see that throughout the book. Now you've kind of described sort of your different interest in it. Um, I think you see both of your voices throughout the project in that way, which is pretty cool. Um, when you have, you know, co-authored projects like that, kind of seeing each uh, contributor's sort of approach to that. Um, and speaking of which, uh, you know, in terms of the research process that, you know, led to the final product, can you tell us a little bit more about that in terms of like, you started getting at this a little bit, Tim, but maybe elaborate a bit more on sort of the sources, you know, and different archives that you explored for this? Well, we didn't do a whole lot of archival research because um, we were looking at, you know, popular songs. We weren't like looking at like sheet music or correspondence or stuff like that, that a lot of traditional music, musicologists might do. Um, one thing that really 
helped me find a lot of songs was a, a five CD set that came out in 2005 called Atomic Platters. Uh, it was produced by a company in Germany called Bear Records, and it has over 100 songs with Cold War themes from like the 1940s to the 1960s. And it's an excellent collection, and it comes with a, you know, a big book with lots of photographs, but it didn't have like a deep analysis of the songs. It had, it had a lot of biographical information. So I started with that, and I started you know, finding a lot of songs from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s to add to it. But that, that five CD set was like a big catalyst in, um, in f finding a lot of the songs. But we found a lot of songs on YouTube, you know, just searching online, just talking to our friends and colleagues about this, you know, this topic. And songs just came out of the woodwork. We just found them here, there, and everywhere. Do you have anything to add, Joanna? Mm -hmm. So I, I would say we could call YouTube one of our main archives because so many people have taken some of the more obscure songs especially from the 1950s and put them up there. So we were able to access things that we wouldn't have been able to access in a million years uh, before YouTube um, provided this vast resource. One thing that was interesting um, that I really loved was we had the opportunity to correspond with some of the people connected uh, with these issues. So uh, one of my favorite um, research opportunities was talking to Nancy Schimmel, who is the daughter of Malvina Reynolds. Uh, if you've ever heard Little Boxes, you've heard one of Malvina Reynolds' songs. Um, she was very kind. She sent me biographical information about her mother's life and photographs, and she talked to me about how some of this work has been carried on into the present. Um, so Nancy herself has been part of an organization called the Occupellas, punning off of the Occupy movement uh, that trains people on how to use protest music within their events. I was also able to briefly correspond with Peggy Seeger, who read our chapter on women songwriters and appreciated the depth of discussion that I in particular gave to her songs. So the opportunity to connect with this, these kinds of people which is just phenomenal. And I believe Tim had the opportunity to correspond with one of the artists who graffitied on the Berlin Wall. So somebody who was right there on the ground during the time of these historic events. Yeah, so it was, um, you know, in, in, in Berlin, West Berlin in the 80s, people were getting so sick of the Berlin Wall. So they started to do graffiti on it. And there was a French street a French street artist named Thierry Noir, who was one of the first people to paint on the, on the Berlin Wall. And his, his paintings made it into a film called Ber Berliner Blau, which is about uh, West Germany's sort of attitude and reaction against the Berlin Wall. A anyways, how this connects to music is that one day, um, it was not him, it was another artist who wrote the title of Sting's song, if you love somebody, set them free, uh, which is on his first uh, solo album from 1985. So Noir saw this and started painting a, a mural under it, and it became one of the most iconic murals on the Berlin Wall. 
before it was there for like two or three years and with this thing other artists would paint over artists other artists work so it was like oh it's always changing but that image of like you know it has these like five faces underneath the title of the sting song if you love somebody set them free and in many ways that became like one of the catchphrases of of the movement to unify germany you know once again so that sort of chipped away at the wall a little bit with art and art and music yeah and as you kind of have in the um synopsis of the book you know it's interesting what these different sources can bring to the table on this topic besides just traditional like you said in the um synopsis like documentaries and history books don't um so this is kind of an interesting added resource to the existing research um on you know cold war history in that way that's right and i think one thing that comes out of these songs is the viewpoint of ordinary people on the ground still so much of our history is is written about the big players the big battles the rulers and so forth and these songs are like little snapshots of how people perceived and experienced the world um, so even the songs that are not functioning as protest songs per se still are giving reactions that ordinary people had. Um, one, one very poignant song we talk about is Bob Dylan's song, Let Me Die in My Footsteps. And this is his response uh, to a childhood memory of door-to-door bomb shelter salespeople coming through his small Midwestern town. And according to his chronicles, the townspeople, as if one voice, said, no, I can't put a bomb shelter in my yard because what would happen to my neighbors? So they made a conscious choice to put neighborly love in the present over fear of what might come in the future. So it's a very poignant and personal song. So like, for example, that's not something you would find in a history book. So these songs are like social history, you know, the history of history from the bottom up instead of from the top down. Yeah, that's really cool. And Joanna, I'm curious how you talk about all this, like, in your classes, I know you'd mentioned to me that you've started using this book, you know, in your teaching. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yes, I had the opportunity to develop a seminar class for undergraduates on protest music with this book. So because we organized our book thematically, um, mostly by topic area, combined with genre and time period, Um, I've used the book as the basis of that class as a way to talk about other issues outside of the Cold War as well. Um, So far, I'm teaching it this semester, the students have been very enthusiastic and we've sparked a number of conversations that take the issues from this historical time period from the 1940s to the 80s up into the present. So some of the issues our book covers are ecology, gender issues, American exceptionalism, peace, war, technology. 
economic equity, moral dilemmas, racism, immigration, and so forth. So you can even hear in that list how many of those issues are still prevalent today. So the structure of our class, we've been covering a chapter each week, and the students will present on readings on one day, and then they'll do song analyses on another day. So it's been really interesting to see how they interact with the background reading and then apply it to the specific songs and lyrics, thinking about the music, thinking about the textual style, thinking about uh, the history and context, um, and always they bring it into the present. So by the end of the class, they're all going to do an essay and some kind of creative response. So they could do an oral history with somebody. They could write a protest song. I know that some of them are planning to write their own protest songs. Um, they could do a performance or a podcast. So I'm really excited to see what they come up with. Um, so some of the things that stood out to me with the teaching so far, one week we listened to Peggy Seeger's song, Four Minute Warning which is a song exactly four minutes long, where she sings about how places in England would experience a nuclear bomb if the drop point were in London. So it radiates outwards in a circle as she names different places across England and how they would experience the, the disaster. So after we listened to it, we pulled out a map and looked at the different places that would be affected as it radiated out. And it was very poignant looking at the actual cities. Um, and even near the ending point, she ends up in Dover, but then you look and right across the channel, you have France. So it was a good moment to look at geography and history as people would have experienced it had that happened. And the end of the song is, this has been your four minute warning. So it puns on the warnings that people would get um, about you know, practicing for a disaster, but also the song itself is functioning as a warning. Stop this before it even happens. Um, I've also found that um, students really want to know, they want to know some of these tougher parts of American history. So in one class, we were talking about the history of Navajo people working in uranium mines in Utah. And one of my students said, why have we not learned about this before? Why was I a senior in college before hearing about this? They want to know the issues, both the good issues and the hard issues. Um, we've documented these issues thoroughly. Um, but as part of it, we really address our book to the general public um, and academic audiences. So when I think about how this book could be used in other situations, this would be a wonderful book to use in an American history class. And I believe high school or college classes could use this. Um, it could be used in a history of protest music taken from a historical point of view or even a women's studies course, as we're looking at the role of women and especially the intersectional issues that come through their songs. Um, another viewpoint, uh, this could be used 
in A Course on American Literature because we were able to obtain permission to include entire song lyrics for a number of songs. So I think this would be a wonderful course to study how the words are used, the rhetoric of these songs, for example. Um, we already know it's been being used in a couple of other classrooms. Um, so we're really excited to see how it will continue to be used. Well, that's interesting to hear because just kind of a side note or side thought here as you were talking, you know, right now there's sort of this big reckoning with the way history is being taught, right? With the sort of quote unquote critical race theory, you know, witch hunt that's happening. And it sounds like that this book really helps students to not totally comfortably, but from what you're saying, like deal with these things that are being misconstrued in mainstream media and whatnot. Right. And I would say, you know, Tim, as a librarian, brings this care to archival research. We have documented thoroughly the issues that we talk about. So there's also things um, like FBI records being opened up, other kinds of documentations. We've, we've thoroughly documented what we've stated in the book. So we're bringing the receipts, so to speak. And it's, it's something that we feel is a responsible part of being a citizen, is that to understand our history, both the good and the bad parts. So there are definitely things that we looked at and we looked at the original documents and we were truly shocked. It's like parts of our history we almost didn't want to know about, but as responsible citizens, we need to know what has happened, good, bad, hard, complicated, because we need to be able to make informed choices as citizens and do better than some of these parts of our history. So um, we do touch on in our class and other conversations that I have, the idea of patriotism and protest are not antithetical. We protest to make things better. We protest to bring attention to those issues. And sometimes I even encourage students to use the term advocacy. Um, and we talk about a spectrum between things that are pointing out how we failed, whether it's in a topical song that deals with a specific moment in time or something that's dealing with issues that are more universal, like poverty and injustice and racial equality. Um, you can point out something that's bad, but you can also work to make it better. So many of these songs are bringing attention to how we can make repairs, how we can fix things, how we can look forward to the future um, by making better decisions in the present. Cool. Thank you. And, you know, following up here with a question to Tim, um, you know, can you talk a little bit about a couple of other interesting song examples from the book, you know, in terms of like what genres are sort of represented here um, and sort of what your takeaways from those are? Okay. So um, the main styles of music, which we, uh, we found the most songs in are folk music, country, uh, comedy, Early rock and rockabilly, blues, calypso, 
mainstream rock, heavy metal, punk, and new wave. So we have uh, chapters devoted to most of those uh, styles of music. And we learned so much about the history of popular music in writing this book. You know, we found songs, we found, we found the weirdest, the weirdest songs. You would not believe how weird some of these songs are. And genres, it's, it's interesting, like most, you know, most of the songs we found espouse, you know, left-wing liberal viewpoints, as you would expect. But we did find some right-wing songwriters. And ironically, you know, some of the uh, most prevalent right-wing songwriters were in folk. So you have these right-wing folk musicians. I mean, when you think of folk music, you think of like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and all these lefties. But there were some right-wing folk singers who were writing about the Korean War and the in the in the Vietnam War, and they weren't ne they weren't necessarily saying it's this is a good war and it should happen. They were saying it's it it have it'll happen. It needs to happen because we need to stop the spread of communism. And they were also just trying to support the troops. You know, we, we can't have a divided America uh, because the troops are de depending on us. Um, so if the, the war is necessary, let's back the troops. But then the lefties are there saying, well, the troops shouldn't be there anyways. <laughs> they shouldn't be there in the first place. So it was really fun finding these right-wing folk musicians. Um, another interesting thing we found uh, when writing the book is how many musicians actually traveled to places where the Cold War was happening. Like in 1972, Joan Baez traveled to Hanoi in North Vietnam to uh, deliver mail to American prisoners of war. So she was part of this part of this entourage that went over there in this at this dangerous time to do that, and she happened to be there during this massive bombing raid. It was called the Christmas Time Bombing, Linebacker 2. It was one of the biggest bombing raids in the Vietnam War. So she spent most of her time in bomb shelters. I'm not even sure if she got to deliver the Christmas letters to the POWs. So she was like right there in the thick of it. And then um, Billy Joel you know, is, is the first musician to play large scale rock concerts in Moscow and Leningrad. Uh, in the middle of the 80s, Sting goes to Chile and Bono from U2 travels to Nicaragua and El Salvador. And they both went there to um, to assist refugees and to you know un understand how the war was affecting Latin Americans. Um, and they both wrote songs about their experiences, which we talk about in the book. And then John Denver goes over to to Moscow and plays a uh, a benefit concert for to raise money for the Chernobyl accident uh, cleanup. So you have all these interactions with musicians who want to find out what's going on firsthand, and they go to these dangerous places and survive and come back and write songs about them. So that was really interesting to find that out. Yeah, was there anything that surprised either of you as you were going through this process of, you know, going through all these songs? Was there anything that kind of stood out to you and you were like, whoa, did not expect that? Well, I have a couple of things to follow up on some of the things that Tim was talking about. Uh, one thing I found very interesting is that some of the 
songwriters who are viewed now as left-wing were actually veterans of World War II. So one, one corrective, I think, that needs to happen as we assess their historical work, looking at Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger, these were people who were veterans of World War II, and they saw one of the greatest threats coming as fascism. So it wasn't just being, um, you know, what we would now label as left wing, but it was also being anti-fascist. They saw this encroach that happened and some of the things happening within McCarthyism confirmed that for them. So we're talking about real life experience um, that informed and shaped their kind of American patriotism. Um, they saw this as a real threat, and then other people were fighting a different kind of war uh, against um, encroaching communism. So the Cold War um, versus continuing to see issues that had spurred on World War II. Another thing that really surprised me, talking about um, the right-wing songwriters, Janet Green was one of those songwriters, and she is a fascinating person because um, one of her roles was to play Cinderella on a local network for children, and she got sexually harassed by her boss, and she ended up suing him and winning. Um, and this is pretty early on. Um, I believe it was the early 60s. Um, so we make sure whichever viewpoint songwriters are coming from, we want to present their ideas in a respectful way uh, because we, all of us need to be good citizens, right? Um, so we try to tell the stories in the full complexity. Um, and some of these, their stories are just fascinating as you look closer at people, um, not just as a parody, not just as, um, an ahistorical person, but as people who are working in a time and a place with access to some information and maybe not access to other information and seeing how that shapes the songwriting that happened. Yeah, there's one more thing I'd like to add to what Joanna said. <clears throat> you know, she mentioned that, uh, Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and some other folk singers were World War II veterans. And what I, you know, I had known that Jimi Hendrix served in the military uh, before he became a guitar virtuoso, but I, I, I had not looked into it. And it was really fascinating to learn, you know, that he was, uh, you know, he went through basic training and he trained as a paratrooper and the 101st Screaming Eagles, you know, it's the, um, band of band of brothers fame who parachuted, you know, into Europe. Um, he never served uh, um, active duty. He was never stationed anywhere outside the United States. This, this was the early '60s, so it was before the Vietnam War, you know, really ramped up. You know, 1965, 1966. But he was a soldier, and I never think of Jimi Hendrix as a soldier. Um, he was only in the military for a year, um, and then he he was sort of like deemed unfit for service because he had no interest in shooting guns and he, he just wanted to play his guitar. So, and that really 
the fact that he was a soldier really shapes our our view of his version of the Star Spangled Banner, you know, which he played, you know, over a hundred times. And of course, during Woodstock, we see him as the emblem of like countercultural protest of the left. But uh, before the, like in, in 1967, because, you know, just as he was becoming, you know, really famous, he was actually supporting the Vietnam War because he saw, you know, fellow soldiers fighting it. And he thought communism was a great threat. Um, he changed his mind, you know, a year or two later, and his views sort of uh, matched more with the counterculture. But he was one of those figures that saw both sides of it. He was an insider and an outsider to the military. He was an African-American in the military, a minority. Um, he was a minority in the rock world. So, of course, Jimi Hendrix is a fascinating character, and it all comes out in his guitar playing. So, Yeah, that's such a rich, uh, you know, perspective of those famous performances he did. Um, that's something I've used a lot in my classes, for instance, and I think a lot of people end up bringing that Woodstock performance in, I've noticed, um, in different courses. So, y'all need to read this book. It paints this very complex picture that they're talking about here. Um, and just kind of talking a little bit more about sort of the ways this book is being presented. I noticed that you have, for instance, on your website, um, some blog posts or what you call quote unquote extra stuff, you know, so how do those posts, you know, complement the book? Do you have other ideas of what you're planning to also do with this project? Um, Tim, if you want to talk about that. Yeah, we found so much to write about that we essentially wrote like a 500-page book, and our publisher was like, uh, "That's too long." Uh, so we compromised, and we 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 have a nice thick 350-page book, which we're very proud of. But then we had all this extra stuff which we took out, which was like fully finished and you know ready to be <laughs> part of the book. So we thought, well, we have to use this somehow. And so uh, in the weeks leading up to the release of our book which is May of last year, we started just, you know, releasing an article a week on our website, like as teasers or as like a sneak peek. So on, on our website, uh, smokily.com, yep. we have, smo uh, I'll get it, Joanna. It's smoko.ly, <laughs> smokily. Yes. So Thank L-Y you. is the. I know it's kind of weird, but that's what, that's what it was. So we have uh, sections about U2, uh, The Beatles, Elvis Presley, Elton John, Billy Joel, Sting, Burl Ives, and music videos from the 1980s. So there's a lot of great stuff on there um, if, if, uh, if you're interested in uh, looking at it, see what the book is like, just read through those articles and you'll get a good taste of what our book is like. We're also including Spotify lists for each of the chapters. So um, we want people to have this as a multi-sensory experience. Read the book, but also listen to the music. So we've included that on our website as well. Cool. That really yeah, brings it to life uh, for folks in more ways than one. That's really cool to have, like you said, that multi-sensory approach. Um, and I kind of wanted to open the floor uh to 
Joanna here or in Tim too, if you have anything to add, you know, in terms of what we've talked about so far, is there anything else about your book, Atomic Tunes, that you'd like to touch on um, that we haven't already had the chance to discuss? Joanna, you can start. Yes. Um, one thing that stood out to me throughout the research was how intersectional these issues were within the songs. Um, so many of these songs are not single issue songs. So when Peggy Seeger and Malvina Reynolds sing about the dangers of fallout radiation, they connect it to ecology, feminism, family. Um, we have in Malvina's song, What Have They Done to the Rain? She responds to nuclear fallout from the bomb testing at the Nevada test site. And this became part of the Women's Strike for Peace movement that happened in the early 1960s. So when I'm teaching from this book, sometimes I'll use the term historical artifact or musical artifact. So this idea that this, these songs are evidence of what's happening in the culture, but there's a few songs like What Have They Done to the Rain that are historical actors. They actually help to change and shift viewpoints around the issues. So um, this Women's Strike for Peace movement helped lead to the treaty that banned nuclear testing above ground, on water, or in outer space. And it was led by women who started a letter writing campaign, um, not just to President Kennedy, but to Jackie Kennedy, to Khrushchev and his wife. They were like, if we can't get the men to see it, we're going to get the women to see it. And it, it worked. That treaty, as far as I know, still has not been violated. So the songs were part of the history, not just reflecting the history. That's cool. Thank you for telling us about that. That's really fascinating. Tim, did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah. Um, so most of the book, uh, we talk about lyrics and music, but there's many other ways that musicians, you know, express their viewpoints. You know, they designed their album covers and even their, you know, their 45 singles. They came with a sleeve also, and they they hired artists to do specific artwork. Like if a, if a song is about, you know, a nuclear topic, it has, you know, the the cover reflects that. Um, they also, we found so many interviews of uh, musicians speaking about songs they'd written about the Cold War. And then they flesh out their experiences, perhaps an experience from their childhood. Like the drummer of Rush, Neil Peart. Uh, Rush wrote many Cold War songs. And Neil Peart was their lyricist. And he grew up in a part of uh, Canada, which is not far from Niagara Falls. So he was about 10 years old when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. So he's 10 years old learning about the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he knows that Niagara Falls is about 10 miles away. And uh, Niagara Falls generates water for one of the biggest hydroelectric plants uh, in Canada and Eastern United States. So it was one of the targets. It was one of the Soviet targets. So 
if you have that information in your mind when you're 10 years old, it's going to affect you the rest of your life. And if you become a creative person and a writer, it's going to come out in your writing. So, and I, I, I'd been a Rush fan like all my life. I, I never knew that aspect of his childhood, that his father, you know, he couldn't afford a bomb shelter in their house. So they made this like little, they found the safest place in the house in the basement and they stocked cans, canned food and water. So they, they did the whole bomb shelter thing when he was 10 years old. So this amazing stuff. Yeah, that's wild. That would be like a life changing or like life altering, I guess, rather like experience. Gosh, I can't even imagine doing that, you know, as a kid. But yeah, thank y'all so much for talking with us about this really rich book. And I hope people take a look at it. And like you were saying, there's a lot that resonates with our current climate um, that I think people would take away um, from reading this. And, you know, looking ahead for both of you, you know, what other projects are you working on next? Um, if, Tim, if you want to go first and talk about your other work you're doing right now and then Joanna after that. Yeah, well, um I continue to write about uh, progressive rock. Uh, there's a, a book coming out in a year or two. It's called The Cambridge Companion to Progressive Rock. And I have a chapter in there about Jethro Tull. Um, I actually don't like to repeat myself. Like when I, um, I try to think of like new projects as like being in sort of the same general area of popular music, but I, I couldn't resist, you know, uh, this offer. So... <laughs> But yeah, I'm, we're looking for something different, something new. And uh, I think Joanna, Joanna can talk more about that than I can. So Joanna? Mm -hmm. So um, my recent work includes, uh, in 2021, I co-edited a volume called Christian Sacred Music in the Americas, where we explore sacred music traditions from a number of different cultural groups within South and Central America, as well as the US and Canada. So um, I'm continuing my work with sacred music, especially researching sacred harp hymns, uh, looking at some of that in our local Athens area, historically in the 19th century um, into the 20th century. Uh, Tim and I are also looking at a couple of other joint projects on popular music. Um, one might be looking at some sacred music influences on the development of rock. Another thing we've, we've shopped around is the idea of looking at uh, how popular music functions within nostalgic television, especially coming of age sorts of uh, series. Cool. That's, I'll look forward to reading a lot of that. That sounds really interesting. I'm excited to see um, the work that you all continue to do. Thank you all so much for joining us on the New Books Network today. Thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, thanks for having us. We had a great time. Yeah. And just listeners, as a quick recap, um, you just heard a discussion with Joanna and Tim Smolko, um, co-authors of Atomic Tunes, the Cold War in American and British Popular Music, published by Indiana University Press in 2021. And this is your host, Emily Allen, and I'll catch you next time here on the New Books Network. <laughs>